trust you have your Bible with you, and I encourage you to take that and find the book of Isaiah, if you will, and we'll turn starting in chapter 24. If you were not here last Lord's Day evening, then uh, you're not aware that we are going through in a quick fashion the major prophets, and we covered 23 chapters in our last study. That sounds like a lot to cover. And that's the kind of quick pace that you see in Acts uh, 7, you see in Deuteronomy 1 to 4, those kind of quick summaries that are given at times to get the gist of, of a picture of history. But be that as it may, we're looking at my servants, the prophets, and this is the second of four lessons on the book of Isaiah. Here is an outline of Isaiah. There are two major sections to the book, chapters 1 to 39. We'll get to the end of that first section in our study tonight. And then the second major section is comfort from God, uh, for God's people uh, in troublesome times and the remnant returns. We'll be more interested in that in our next study. But in chapters 1 through 39, this is during the Assyrian threat. Uh, Judah, to whom he is prophesying, that's the southern kingdom, is going to eventually go into Babylonian captivity and Assyria is not going to take them. The prophet has been telling them that. Though they're not sure of that because they want to put confidence in another nation to defend them rather than putting their confidence in God. That seems to be the problem all through the, uh, the book of Isaiah. So we looked at the first 23 chapters, and what we saw in that was a prophecy against Judah and Jerusalem. Here was the sin of the, the southern nation dealt with in the first 12 chapters. And then there was the nations section in 13 to 23, where whether it be Egypt or Ethiopia or Syria or whatever nation it may be, God addresses the nations. And he's going to do that again in our study tonight. So let's talk about chapters 24 to 39. There's a lot to be covered in that. There are four chapters that fit together, and then there are eight chapters that fit together, and then four more chapters to fit together. So we'll look at 16 in all. There are two major points to be learned from this section, and that is that God judges the nations. We've already seen that, but we see it in a different perspective. 24 to 27, and then chapters 25, 28 to 35, we're going to see that God judges his people. Then there is a historical interlude at the end of this section concerning Hezekiah. That may be, uh, is more historical than it is prophetic. So let's get to chapters 24 to 27. This deals with world judgment and the deliverance of God's people. Now what happens in 24, 25, 26, and 27, those four chapters, backs up and deals in a general sense what 13 to 23 dealt with in a specific sense. In other words, chapter 23 dealt with Egypt, and then it dealt with Assyria, and then it deals with Ethiopia and uh, various other nations, Edom, dealt with various nations specifically, this is in a generic general sense, and it serves as a summary of what we have just considered in 13 to 23. So first of all, we see that sin is the reason for the judgment. That's chapter 24. So let's notice chapter 24. It's just summarizing what we just saw. Why is God judging and condemning and going to bring these nations down? It's because of sin in the nations. So the first thing I want you to notice, we're not going to notice every verse of every chapter. Time forbids that. We'll hit the high points. Verse 1 says that God's going to cause the earth to be empty and he's going to scatter the people, suggesting that God's bringing judgment upon the nations. No one is going to be exempt. In fact, he talks about whether it be the people or the priest, verse 2, or the servant or the master or the maid or the mistress or the lender or the borrower. In other words, all people are going to be those who are going to face judgment. No one is exempt from this judgment. 
In verses 4 to 6, we see this sin that is identified, and that is, the earth was defiled because its inhabitants have transgressed the laws and changed the ordinances and broken the everlasting covenant. So because they have violated the will of God and because of sin, the nations indeed are going to be judged. Now how bad will it be on these nations? Well, notice beginning at verse 7 through verse 23, it's this bad. He gives two illustrations of it. Look at verse 12. It's going to be like a city that's left in ruins. And so he talks about a city that's left desolate and it's left in ruins. That's what God's dealing with the nations are going to be like. It's like a city that's been wiped out and there's nothing but ashes left. And then furthermore, chapter 24 and in verse 20, it's going to be like a, a drunkard who falls down and doesn't rise again. And so here's the idea of a drunkard falling, but he might rise up again, not this drunkard. When God deals with the nations, the drunkard falls down and can't get back up. And so it's going to be devastating in God's dealing with that. Now the next two chapters, chapters 25 and 26, deal with four songs. What are the four songs? This has to do with praise for God's victory over the nations. One of the questions that may come up in studying in chapters 1 through 12, God's going to deal severely with his people, but what about all these nations that are worse than his people? Well, 13 through 27, God will deal with that. So in 25 and 26, here are four songs of praise concerning that. So let's see what the songs say. In chapter 25, verses 1 to 5, there's a song for, of praising God for his power and for his mercy. Verse 1, I will praise your name. Verse 2, you have made the city a ruin and fortified a city, suggesting God's power. God could take a city, God could take a nation, God could take nations and make them nothing but ruin. And yet God has mercy. Look at verse 4. He said, for you have a strength, you have been a strength to the poor, and you have been a, a strength to the needy in his distress. So God can show mercy while at the same time showing power. Verses 6 through 8, there's a song of rejoicing, song of rejoicing for the feast in Mount Zion. Now we're going to talk in our last study of this number of lessons we're going to have all through the prophets. We'll talk about the messianic prophecies, but I'm trying to flag them as we go through. And this is one of the messianic prophecies, these two verses. The, the prophet often talks about the sin of the nation or nations, and then as a contrast to that, he talks about a brighter future, and this is one of those wherein there is the feasting, there is this great feast that's offered that is cast over all the people, that would include Gentiles, verse 7, and uh, there is a feast in Mount Zion. And so here is rejoicing and feasting in Mount Zion in contrast to the sin of the nations. The prophet often does that kind of thing. Beginning at verse 9, here's a song of rejoicing because of salvation or deliverance that God has promised. Notice at verse, uh, verse 9, or, or yeah, verse 9, that it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. And so here is deliverance. It comes through trusting and having faith and confidence in God. Now, Moab is mentioned at verse 10. I don't think he's single, uh, singling out Moab in a generic section, but Moab was a constant enemy of God's people, and it stands for the enemies and the nations that were against God, is what that stands for. Now, beginning at chapter 26, in fact, the whole chapter is a song for a strong city. This would have reference to Jerusalem. Notice he calls it a strong city at verse 1. He said, you will keep it in perfect peace. Trust in the Lord forever for Yah, or Yahweh, the Lord, is everlasting strength. And so here is a song of praise for the deliverance of God's people. Now verse 16, the Lord in trouble they have visited you. And that is, 
that trouble brings people to the Lord. And that's true in our own day and time, that trouble brings us to our knees and our dependence upon God. So Jerusalem, when they were in trouble and under the threat, should have drove them to their knees, and for some, indeed, it did. So now, notice at verse 20, verse 20, there is protection that is coming uh, from judgment, that is, Assyria is going to be a threat, and yet God will protect uh, his people. Notice that come my people enter the chambers and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourself as it were for a little moment. And that's a picture of God protecting his people. So there are the four songs of praise for God for his victory over the nation. Now let's finish this first section dealing with destruction of the nations and restoration of a remnant. First of all verse 1 announces the destruction of the nations. And so notice he says that God and his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Well, that's mentioned about three times in, uh, in the Psalms, about four times. Twice in, uh, in Job, once in Psalm, uh, I believe it's Psalm 104, and here in Isaiah chapter 27. Seems to be a mythical or some kind of imaginary kind of sea creature standing for the power of the nations. And so God's going to bring Leviathan down. That twisted serpent, he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. Supposedly some kind of sea monster. So God's going to bring Leviathan down, he said. In other words, God's going to destroy the nations. That's what we've been talking about. Now, verses 2 through 13 now in this chapter talks about the restoration of a remnant. Now, how does he describe that? Well, he first of all describes it as a new vineyard. This is messianic. You might want to flag that as being messianic. That in contrast to the sinful nation and a failed vineyard we've already noticed earlier, here is a new vineyard that indeed flourishes. Here is something that's in the future. Here is a, a vineyard that has the red wine, verse 2, that I, the Lord, watered it every moment lest it be hurt. So he takes care of the vine and it becomes fruitful and there will be peace and make peace there. Notice it, verse 6 that he shall come and shall, shall cause to take root in Jacob. That tells me that it's messianic. All right, now beginning at verse uh, 7 through verse 9, Israel's punishment or destruction is not complete, he says. Notice at verse, uh, verse 7, Israel is going to go into captivity in measure by sending them away. He talks about sending them away. But here's what's going to happen with reference to captivity. Notice at verse 9. At verse 9... He said, and this, when Jacob will be covered, and this is the fruit of taking away his sin. In other words, captivity is going to cause them to be cleansed. It's a cleansing effect upon the nation. And secondly, he's going to cause them to cease their idolatry when the wooden images and incense uh, altars do not stand up. So in other words, the idolatry will cease. It has a cleansing effect indeed upon the nations. Now, let's go further, beginning at verse 10 and 11. Yet sinful Israel will be forsaken. The habitation will be forsaken. He's talking about the present time. And then he goes back to the future again at the end of the chapter, verses 12 and 13, talking about the gathering of Israel. Now, that's the, the nature of how Isaiah writes. He talks about the present, then he goes to the future, even the day of the Messiah. And then he comes back to the present. Then he goes to the future the remnant returning, and then goes even blending that into the future of the Messianic age. Sometimes it's hard to tell which one he's talking about as we go through the book. Now, let's talk in the next section now. There was the world judgment and the deliverance of God's people. That's in general terms what God was doing in 13 to 23. 
Now here is a series of woes against the sins of God's own people. And this carries us from 28 to 35. There's a number of woes here. First of all, there is the woe upon Ephraim, that is Israel, northern kingdom, and Judah, or Jerusalem, the southern kingdom. So let's start in chapter 28. He talks about the crown of pride, that would be Samaria. The crown of pride to the drunkards of Ephraim, talking about the northern kingdom. They're going to be brought down because, verse 1, because of their pride, he says, in verses 1 to 6. Behold, the Lord is mighty, and a strong one, that's Assyria, is going to come as a, as a hail and as a storm among them. The glory, verse 4, of this kingdom of Ephraim, the northern kingdom, is a fading flower, he says. Now, beginning at verse 7, he shifts gears and talks about Jerusalem. They also, in addition to this northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, now this gets interesting here, because they have made a covenant with death. Let's see what that is. So beginning at verse 7, they also have erred. And notice the picture. Sometimes we, people think, well, I, they don't like to, to, to paint sin as such a graphic picture. Here's what God thinks of it, verse 8. For all the tables are full of vomit and filthiness. This is how God's anger is stirred against sin. God said, your sin, it looks like a pile of vomit is what it looks like. And that's how I view it. It makes me sick to look at your sin like looking at a pile of vomit. Uh, that's how God calls it, and that's what God thinks about that. Now, verse 9, we don't have time to develop the details, but here's what's going on in the nation. Here is why they have made a covenant with death. What God has said to them, they think is too simplistic. And that's the point of verse 9, that who will teach knowledge? Who's going to teach us? Because what is being taught to us is too simplistic, they said. And furthermore, it's too, uh, it's too legalistic. It's precept upon precept, line upon line, he said. So they think it's too binding, number one, and number two, it's too simple. And so they reject the message of God. Now I want you to notice now at verse 15, 14 and 15, they are scornful men, that is, they have scorned the word of God, and they have made a covenant with death. What's that talking about? That's an alliance they have made with Egypt. So they've gone down to Egypt and, and formed an alliance, an agreement with Egypt, that Egypt will help them fight and ward off the threat of Assyria. While the prophet is trying to tell them, Assyria is not going to take you if you just put your trust and your confidence in God. So they have confidence in Egypt more than they do in God himself. That's the problem, as we're going to see in chapter 31. So now notice at verse 18, your covenant with death will be annulled. God's going to overthrow that covenant with death. Your covenant of death is so useless. Notice what he says at verse 20. It's useless, he says. It's as, it's as useless as a bed that's too short or a cover that's too narrow. Uh, you, you, set, you get in a bed that's too short and your cover isn't wide enough and it doesn't cover you. That's a useless bed and it's useless cover. Your covenant with Egypt is useless because Egypt is going to fall and Egypt is not going to help you at all. Therefore, it's, uh, it's a useless act. Now notice that 23 through verse 29, God's purposes and plans are illustrated with farming. And you might wonder, does God know what he's doing here? That is, you may not wonder that, but the people of, of Judah may wonder that. God sees Assyria coming, and Assyria is threatening us, and God says put our confidence in him and don't go get a nation to help fight against him. And uh, some in the nation that Robinson calls the Egyptian party suggest we need to go to Egypt and form an alliance and, and get them to fight with us. Are we going to trust 
in this nation or are we going to put our trust and our confidence in God? Does God really know what he's doing? Well, here's what a farmer does. And uh, there's various things that he does and there's reasons for it. For example, at verse 24, he plows. And then verse 25, he levels the clods. And then he sows. And when he sows, according to verse 25, some of the seed may be scattered and others is planted in rows. So there's different things he's doing. He's plowing. And you say, well, aren't you uh, sowing? Well, I'm not ready for sowing. I'm plowing. Well, why are you leveling? Well, because I've already plowed. And why are you sowing? Because I've already plowed and I've already leveled. Well, why do you scatter over here, but you plant in rows? Because it's different kinds of things that you're sowing. Well, when it comes time for harvest, some of it is for threshing and other of it is for grinding. And so there's different things that, the, that is done by the farmer. So likewise, here's the point. So also comes from the Lord of hosts, how wonderful is his counsel and excellent in guidance, verse 29. In other words, God has a purpose. God has a plan and he knows what he's doing. God may be plowing when you think he ought to be sowing. He may be leveling clods when you think he ought to be harvesting. And God's saying, just wait, I'll take care of Assyria. Put, my, put your confidence and your trust in me. What a beautiful illustration. Now, chapter 29, there is woe to Ariel, that's Jerusalem, for their blind formalism. There's some practical stuff right here in chapter 29. So here's what he says. Je uh, Jerusalem is going to be punished, but they're going to be delivered. What does he mean? Well, Assyria is going to come and threaten and punish them. I will encamp against you. I will lay siege mounds against you, verse 3. Verse 5 Moreover, the multitude of your foes, that's Assyria, shall be like fine dust. So you're going to have Assyria come and they're going to shake and rattle your cage, what, is go what they're going to do. Assyria is going to come and they're going to threaten you. And they're going to scare you to death. They're going to punish you. That's true. That's going to happen to you. But God says, I'm going to deliver you. In fact, notice at verse 7. The deliverance from Assyria is going to be like, like waking from a bad dream. When, when all is over and Assyria falls, and Assyria didn't take Judah, for both nations, it's going to be like waking from a dream. For, for Judah, it's going to be like waking from a nightmare. That's his point at verse, 20, uh, verse 7 and 8. Uh, it's going to be like waking from a nightmare. They thought they were going to be slaughtered, and they weren't slaughtered, so you're like waking up from a nightmare. I'm glad that's over. But on the other hand, notice at verse 8, the end of verse 8, but he awakes, indeed he is faint, for Assyria, it's going to be like waking up from a dream about food, and now he's still hungry. He didn't get what he wanted. Again, what an interesting picture God gives of how he's going to bring all of this to an end. Now, the problem here is that Jerusalem is blinded by formalism. Let's get the picture of being blinded. He says, blind yourselves and be blind. Why are they blind? Well, because... There has been a spirit of deep sleep that has closed their eyes, namely the prophets. In other words, false prophets have come and told them, don't listen to Isaiah. Don't listen to what Isaiah is saying. Don't listen to what these prophets are saying. Everything's going to be all right. Or maybe you need to go form an alliance over here with Egypt. And so they've been led into blindness. Now notice the hypocrisy. Verse 13, this sort of sounds familiar. And you're familiar, not probably because of your familiarity with Isaiah, but your familiarity with Matthew 15. And as much as the people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips and remove their hearts far from me. That is a picture of hypocrisy, formalism. And their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. 
You may have a translation. The New American Standard says, tradition learned by rote. In other words, just going through formalism, going through the action. It's what they were doing. Or as NET says, nothing but a man-made ritual. So in other words, they turn their, their religion into just a ritual that they go through. It's a man-made ritual. And so blind, they're blind, uh, blinded by their formalism. Chapter 29, there's a woe to those who think they can hide from God. Sometimes men think they can hide from God. Now what is, is it they're hiding from God? Well, look at verse 15. Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord. Now, what are they trying to hide? Well, it's their alliance with Egypt. That they go off to Egypt and form an alliance, come and fight with us. We've got Assyria breathing down our necks, and we need you to fight with us. And uh, that's what they have, have sought after. Now, I want you to notice that there is going to be in this period, Judah thinks they can hide their plans from God, verses 15 and 16, but 17 to 24, there's a brighter future in the Messiah. Here's where he does that again. And so it painted a dark background, and now there's a brighter future in the Messiah. How's it going to be in the Messiah? Well, they'll be able to, uh, those who are, are deaf will be able to, to hear, and those who are blind will be able to see, verse 18, and there will be rejoicing, verse 19, because the enemy has been cut off. So the days of the Messiah are far better than the days of Isaiah. A brighter future in the Messiah. Well, chapter 30 now, we're making some progress. Chapter 30, here is woe to a rebellious people. And notice here is this rebellion. This is probably about 705 B.C. Uh, when Judah had uh, decided to rebel against Assyria. And notice what it said concerning this rebellious people. Judah has confidence in Egypt. Notice verse 2, they walk down to Egypt and uh, have not asked my advice. In other words, they've gone to Egypt and made an alliance with them, or tried to do that at least. And so they're putting their confidence in Egypt. Look at verse 5. They shall be ashamed of a people who shall not benefit them. In other words, this is going to fail. It's not going to do any good, have an alliance with Egypt. Egypt is going to fail and Egypt is going to fall. Uh, notice it, verse 7, for the Egyptians shall help in vain to no purpose. Therefore, I shall call her Rahab him Shebath. What does that mean? Dragon of do-nothing. Moffat translates that. The NE, uh, NCV translates that Rahab the do-nothing. In other words, Egypt is a do-nothing nation. They're not going to help you at all. So you have confidence in Egypt and you don't have God. But the future, verses 18 to 26, is going indeed to be different. This again is messianic, seemingly. Uh, they're going to cry. There's going to be a time that people will cry out for an answer. God will listen. Notice it, verse 21, uh, God, or verse 19, God will hear and God will listen. And uh, this is the way you walk in it. Here's a be better picture of people being obedient, being submissive in the days of the Messiah. Now let's get 23, 27 to 33. What's going to happen is God's going to deal with Assyria. Verse 27, God's going to burn in his anger. His lips are full of indignation. And I skipped the first part of verse 27. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger. In other words, God's going to deal with Assyria. God's going to bring Assyria down is the picture. What's going to be the result? Well, look at verse 29. Israel is going to rejoice and there's going to be festivities. But now notice verse 31. For through the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be beaten down, who struck with a rod. Assyria, indeed, is going to fall. Assyria is not going to take Judah. 
like they thought was going to happen. Now let's get 31 and 32 together. Woe to those who rely on horses and chariots of Egypt. That is, don't put your confidence in, in Egypt. If you were not here last week, we noted that chapter 31, verse 1, serves as a summary of the entire book, and it does. Woe to those who go down to Egypt and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many. Don't put your confidence in, in the horses and the chariots of Egypt because they're a big and great nation and do not put your confidence in the Lord. Look at verse 3. The Egyptians are men and not God and the horses are flesh and not spirit. They'll perish together, verse, verse 3. So don't put your confidence. Those are just mere horses. Uh, they're not spirits. They're not God. They're mere men. Don't put your confidence in those horses and in those chariots in chapter 31. Now, in chapter, uh, chapter 31, his whole point, it's foolish to think about that. Now notice it, verse 8, um, or verse, verse 5, chapter 31, verse 5. Like birds flying about, so the Lord of hosts will defend Jerusalem. I'm going to protect Jerusalem. Verse 8, Assyria shall fall by a sword, not of man. I'm going to cause Assyria to fall, but it's not going to be because Egypt is so powerful. That's not why they're going to fall. They're going to fall because I wanted them to fall. I'll take care of Egypt. God is going to take, I mean, take care of Assyria. I'm going to take care of Assyria, God says. Now, chapter 32, here is Messianic section again, if you want to mark it. Verses 1 through 8, here is a king reigning in righteousness, where again the eyes see and are not dim, verse 3. The heart has understanding, verse 4. In verses 5 and 6, moral confusion is no longer there. Remember where they're calling evil good and good evil? Chapter 5, that's gone in the days of the Messiah. Now here is a problem of complacency at the end of chapter 32. What is the problem of complacency? Look at verse 5. Rise up, women who are at ease, you complacent or indifferent daughters. And then he calls them complacent women again. Now, when they are complacent, they ought to be embarrassed. Embarrassed as a person who is, who is stripped of their clothes, verse 11. As if you were stripped naked running around, you ought to be embarrassed at your complacency. The vineyard, it's a picture of a vineyard falling. Complacency in the nation is pictured like a, a vineyard that's failing and a city, notice it, verse 13, that's grown up or a vineyard that's grown up with briars, a palace that has been forsaken. So complacency brings upon themselves destruction. So here is a picture in chapter 32, the problem of complacency, it brings destruction upon them. At the end of chapter 32, we have a messianic section again. Now let's talk about the six of the seven things that are mentioned here in chapter 28 to 35. And let's go to chapter 33, woe to Assyria now. Here's the woe to Assyria, the foe of God's people. Assyria is going to fall. This is what Isaiah has been telling them all along. Assyria is going to fall and Judah will be delivered. You don't have to trust in Judah or in uh, Egypt. You don't have to do that. So look at verses 1 through verse 16. Woe to those who plunder and who have been plundered. Now get the picture again. Woe to, to you who plunder, though you have not been plundered. That's Assyria. Assyria has been plundering nation after nation. Woe to Assyria. Now notice at verse 2, he said, O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. That is, we've waited for this deliverance. And the noise of the tumult and at the people flee. In other words, here is the picture of the instability of depending uh, uh, when, when, when Assyria was in power and the stability that comes 
with reference to God. And notice that verse 4, your plunder has gathered together like the gathering of a caterpillar. There's a picture of justice and righteousness and wisdom. There's the stability found in a king that brings peace and brings beauty, which seems to be messianic again. Now, I want us to drop down to chapter 33. And uh, notice at verse 10, he says, uh, or let's, let's look at verse 8. Assyria is already making a threat. This seems to be in 701 when uh, Sennacherib is making his attempt in 701 B.C., that the highways are laid waste and the warefaring men cease. In other words, Assyria is already making a threat. Now, at verse 10, God said, I will rise and I will, uh, what, what's God going to do? I will rise and say, say to the Lord, now I will be exalted. In other words, the Lord's going to rise up and Assyria will be destroyed. How so? He said, I will, uh, you may conceive chaff. In other words, I'm going to turn Assyria into chaff and I'm going to blow her away. Now, I want you to notice at verse 15 now. At verse 15, the 14, the question is asked that, that there is fear instilled in the sinful nation. And the question is, who among us shall dwell with a devouring fire? When God's wrath is stirred, who can be spared? Here's a sermon within itself. You want something practical? Here it is. Look at verse 15 in answer to that. Who can stand the fire of God's wrath? Here's the answer. There's six answers that are given. He that walks uprightly or walks righteously. So in other words, who lives right and speaks uprightly. That is, they teach right things, teach the truth. Secondly, who despise the gain of oppressions. They're not greedy. Who gestures with his hand and refuses bribes. He's fair and he's honest. And who stops his ear at the hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes and seeing evil, he hates sin. We just listed six things. Here's the one who will stand when God's wrath is stirred. The one who lives right and does right and is fair and is honest and uh, is doing what's right. Now again, we have the Messianic section beginning at verse 17 through verse 24. And notice in that section he talks about, uh, this reminds us of Isaiah 2 that they will see the land which is very far off. Here is the idea of all nations coming into this kingdom, a, a period of peace and of safety. Now let's get 34 and 35, and not only in this section, and that is judgment on the nations versus the joy for the redeemed. Chapter 34, the whole chapter is concerning judgment on the nations. Notice two or three things. First, uh, verse 2, the indignation of the Lord is against all nations. His fury and his wrath is stirred. The next verse. Verse 6 mentions Edom again. I think that stands for the enemies of God's people in general, not just the nation of Edom. Verse 8, judgment is going to be severe because this is a day of the Lord's vengeance, and it shall not be quenched at night, and the smoke shall ascend forever. So when God gets ready to deal with the nations, he said God's going to deal with the nations. Look at verse four, uh, 16 to finish that chapter. Um, or verse 13, the, nation, the land's going to be laid waste. Verse 16 uh, it's going to be written in the book, and it will not fail. Not a word of this shall fail. In other words, if God said they're going to fall, they're going to fall. If God says he'll protect the nation, he indeed will. So that's the woes against the sins of the people. Now let's see if we can get the last section of four chapters. This is a historical interlude. Now, much of what we've seen so far, in fact, all of what we've seen so far, there is some history in that, but it's more prophetic of God preaching through Isaiah to the nation for their sin, nations for their sin, saying, here's what's going to happen to Egypt, here's what's going to happen to Assyria, here's what's going to happen to Judah, uh, here's what's going to happen to Israel. 
is a historical interlude concerning Hezekiah. Let's see what happens. Let's group chapter 36 and 37, and first of all, there is, in this section, the victory over Assyria. Um, so in chapter 36 now, we have Sennacherib's arrogant threat against Judah. And let's see what happens in chapter 36. This was in 701 B.C. that we've identified when Sennacherib makes his threat against Judah. And by the way, for what it's worth, in this section, uh, if you want parallel accounts, 2 Kings chapters 18, 19, and 20 would be parallel. And 2 Chronicles 32 would be parallel to this, and we have some information there we're not going to take the time to trace. But in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, that Sennacherib king of Assyria came up and he took fortified cities. So he took some cities, but he hasn't destroyed the nation. But now Hezekiah's wondering what's going to happen. And he makes an arrogant threat against them. Notice that he sends his delegation forth, and he asks in verses 4 to 6 if, if Hezekiah and Judah is going to put their trust in Egypt to save them. Do you think Egypt can save you? That's the point of verses uh, down through verse uh, 6 that uh, those are vain words, he says. And he talks about the broken reed Egypt. And uh, so he's trying to, to tell them that Egypt can't help you if you're putting confidence in Egypt. But now he ridicules them and shows his ignorance. Look at verse 7. He asked them this time, are you going to put your trust in your God to save you? The God that Hezekiah has destroyed the idols of. He doesn't distinguish between the one true God and the idol gods. He's ignorant. He doesn't know the difference in those. So when your king has destroyed the worship places to your God, the idols, how's your God going to save you, he says. What arrogance. And so he gives a challenge to the people. Notice it, verse 13 and 14. Rabshakeh is not the name of a person, but it has to do with a delegation or a chief official. Um, and so it's, it's a governor or it's a, it's a lieutenant or it's a, someone along that line who is, who is an official of the king. And he sends him out and he says, hear the words of the great king, king of Assyria. What does he say? Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, verses 14 and 15. Don't let Hezekiah de deceive you into thinking that uh, Syria is not going to take you. We are going to take you. So what he says in verse 16 and 17, what you need to do is make some kind of peace with us by sending a gift, sending money to us, a tribute to us, and everything's going to be all right. And notice what he finally says. At verse 18, 19, and 20, that other gods have not saved their people and neither will your God save yours. So where are the gods, he said, verse 19. The gods of other nations did not deliver them. We've taken other nations and your God's not going to help you either. And that was his arrogant threat. We're coming in and we're, we're going to rattle your cage. We're going to take you, he said. But God defends Jerusalem because of Hezekiah's plea. Hezekiah seeks assurance from Isaiah. So let's go to chapter 37. We only have 37, 38, and 39. We think we'll make our, our destination here in a moment. So the king sent word to Hezekiah and asked him concerning this. And Isaiah said to him, notice it, verse 6. Here was the answer. Thus you shall, the, Isaiah said to those messengers that were sent, Thus shall you say to your master, Thus says the Lord. That's an interesting phrase. 
that ought to be always what we're looking for. What did the Lord say? Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, which your servants, the king of Assyria, have blasphemed me. Don't be afraid of him. Surely I send him a spirit, and he shall hear a rumor, and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. So yes, he's about ready to take you, but he's going to get word that there's problems back home, and he's going to go back home, and he'll never make it back to take Jerusalem. That's what's going to happen. Don't be threatened by that. Don't be threatened by that at all. Now, beginning at verse 8 through verse 20, Sennacherib's threatening letter and Hezekiah's response to that. Here's the threatening letter and Hezekiah's response to that. Let's see what the letter basically was. There was this threatening letter that he sends, and he tries to intimidate. Look at verse 10. He says, uh, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah the king, Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you into saying, Jerusalem will not be given to the king of Assyria. Look, you have heard the king of Assyria has gone into all the lands, utterly destroying them, and you will be delivered. So again, he makes this threatening letter. Here's Hezekiah's response beginning at verse 14. And notice what, how he responds. He responds by going to the Lord and praying to the Lord. That was the response that he gave to the threatening letter was to turn and go to the Lord in prayer. And notice that down through uh, verse 20. Now I want you to notice now beginning at verse 21, here was the Lord's response to Hezekiah's prayer. Verses 21 to 38, what does he say? Well, he said, Jerusalem will, will scorn Assyria. Notice that in verse 22. They're going to, to scorn Assyria. In other words, they'll mock Assyria because Assyria is going to fall. Notice now that Assyria and her pride came against the Holy One and they thought they were doing this by their own power. But verse 26, he said, I have formed it, and I have brought it to pass. In other words, God said, I was using Assyria as a tool, is all they were, is a tool in my hand. They had no power, no strength of their own. So notice now at verse 28 and 29, because your rage against me and the tumult has come up to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips and I will turn you back by the way in which you came. In other words, I'm going to put my hook in the nose of Assyria, and I'm going to pull them back, and I'm going to deal with Assyria. I'm going to bring Assyria down. Now notice verse 33, 34 and 35, particularly verse 35, I will defend this city for my sake, my servant David's sake. So God is saying I'm going to defend Jerusalem because of the sake of David. Now let's go further and notice now in chapters 38 and 39 his sin with Babylon. What happens now? That was victory is going to happen. The, Hezekiah was assured through the prophet there's going to be victory over Syria. Syria's going to fall. They're not going to take you. But now his sin with Babylon. Chapter 38 talks about his sickness and his life being extended. He becomes sick, the text tells us, in chapter 38. It's a short chapter. And the Lord told him to set your house in order. You shall die and shall not live. That makes a sermon within itself. When it looks like you're going to die, you better get your house in order. It's always good to have our house in order before we're ready to die. You don't know but what this may be the day that you die, so get your house in order. So Hezekiah pleaded to the Lord, and he wept bitterly, and here was the response that came by Isaiah. God said, I heard your voice. I've heard your prayer, verse 5, and I've added to your days 15 years. 
This would have been about 712 B.C. It would have been about 39 years. This would have been about 11 years before Sennacherib's invasion of 701 that we talked about. Now, so he becomes sick. He was promised 15 more years. Now, let's drop down to verse, that gets us down through verse 8. Now, let's get verse 8. This is going, let's, before we get verse 7 and 8, let's go over to 21 and 22. That seems to fit there. And you say, how do you know it fits there? That's where it fits in 2 uh, Kings chapter uh, 20, verses 1 through 11. That's how I know it fits there. But anyway, Isaiah said to him, take a lump of figs and apply it as a poultice to the boil and you shall recover. And then Hezekiah said, what sign that I shall go to the house of the Lord? What sign shall I see? Well, let's go back and see what the sign was. I'll bring, verse 8, the sundial which has gone down with the sun on the sundial of Ahaz 10 degrees backwards, so the sun turned backward 10 degrees by which it had gone down. Now that caused all kind of consternation on the part of scholars. Was this a worldwide moving of the planets or stopping of the planets like the days of Joshua? Could have been. God has the power to do that. Or was this more likely a localized phenomena of some refraction of light? Well, from 2 Chronicles 32 and verse 21, this was a wonder that was done in the land of, Egypt, uh, land of Judah. Seemingly, it was something that took place there and was not worldwide. I'll leave that for you to judge. Now, beginning at verse 9 through verse 20 is a prayer of thanksgiving. And he thanks God for his recovery. And so basically what he does, he talks about the, the nature of a premature death. It's like taking something that's being uh, uh, woven, pulling it off of the loom before it's finished. And so here is the terribleness of a premature death. He wasn't ready to die. But then he praises God for his extended life. And here's what he promises. What shall I say? Verse 15. And he said in himself, I will walk carefully in all my years. Making the plan and the plea. I'm going to walk carefully in the, uh, the plan of God. Now, the last chapter we're going to consider Hezekiah's sin with Babylon. Hezekiah, according to chapter 39, that the king of Babylon sent a delegation to him concerning his recovery from his sickness. He had heard of that. And so he comes, the text says, he sends messengers, and it seems that he was more seeking the idea is, are, are you going to form some kind of alliance and fight with us and fight, get Egypt on board and, and fight against Assyria? Is that what you're going to do? Babylon is not the predominant power at the time. But be that as it may, Hezekiah was pleased that they come, and he showed them all the treasures of his house, the gold and the silver and everything, and there wasn't anything that he had he didn't show it to him. So he in his pride, by the way, 2 Kings talks about his pride, that in his pride he showed them all of this. It was a prideful thing, showing and displaying all of his treasure and all the might that he had. That's in verses 1 and 2. Well, he's rebuked by Isaiah for that. He's rebuked by Isaiah. Because Isaiah said, here's a good question that each one of us should ask, what have they seen in your house? When these visitors came, what did they see in your house? What do people see in your house? What kind of attitude do they see? What are you displaying in your house? Makes a good sermon. So Hezekiah answered and said, they've seen everything. I showed it to them all. And Isaiah said to him, that's where he goes back to the mode of prophecy. And he said, the days are coming, verse 6, when all that is in your house, which your father has accumulated to this day, is going to be carried into Babylon. All those goods, that wealth you're showing him, Babylon's going to get it. Now, Babylon's not the predominant power. Assyria is. But he's prophesying concerning a Babylonian captivity for the southern kingdom. But not only that, your sons will be taken away. 
Your sons are going to go. Your children are going to go. And your family is going to go. And so there's going to be a Babylonian captivity. Well, that is the historical interlude concerning Hezekiah. Now, here's four things that we've learned from these chapters and we're done. I know that's a hurried look, but that gets us through 39 chapters and quick summary of what these chapters are saying. Well, here's what we learned from that section. We take home with us. What are we taking home with us? That God rules in the kingdoms of men. We saw that in chapters 13 to 23, particularly. We see that here in 24 to 27. That God rules in the kingdoms of men. God's ruling in the nations now. And I learned that sin among God's people will not be ignored. God not only deals with the nations, He deals with His own people. And I learned that trust must be placed in the Lord and not in the strength of man. If this nation is going to be spared, it's not because we formed an alliance with a nation that's mighty enough to help us fight. It's because we put our trust and our confidence in the Lord. And then finally, pride leads to destruction for nations and for people. It was a problem in every one of the nations. It was a a problem even for Hezekiah. Well, that's chapters 24 through 39. Quick survey through that great book, that great prophet Isaiah. There may be one or more present this evening who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing? Spread the tidings all around. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Bear the news to every land. Climb the steeps and cross the waves. Onward tis our Lord's command. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Sing above the battle strife, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, by his death and endless life. Jesus saves, Jesus saves, sing it softly through the gloom, when the heart for mercy craves. Sing in triumph for the tomb. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Give the winds a mighty voice. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Let the nations now rejoice. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Shout salvation full and free, highest hills and deepest caves. This our song of victory, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. We're again thankful.